It's Friday here at Radical Personal Finance, and that means Q&A. Good Friday to all of you, my radical friends. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today on the show, we do a live q and I've got the phone lines open. I've got three callers on the line. It's to be fun. Let's see if we can learn together. I possibly can due to my just personal travel schedule, etc., and the, the simple logistics. I always try to do on Friday a live Q and A show. Uh, basically, it works like talk radio. You uh, get a phone number and you call in, and I go live to the call. I try to make these calls very open. I don't screen them in advance. All I do is jump on real quick as we're getting ready to record and see who's calling and get a quick idea of the questions. But I don't screen them. So you're, this is the best way if you want to ask me about anything in the world or talk about anything in the world. This is the best way to get through. I do screen out the callers based upon those who support the, the show on Patreon. So these calls are open to those of you who voluntarily choose to support me and pay me money uh, through the Patreon program. If you're interested in doing that, I would welcome you to do that and would be deeply appreciative of your doing so. You can do that at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Once you sign up there to support the show, uh, at that point in time, you have the opportunity to gain access to the time and the phone number to be able to join a call like this. So let's start with Erica in New Hampshire. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance. How can I serve you today? Oh, thank you, Joshua. You've already served me so much. Uh, by following by following a lot of the things that you've spoken about on the podcast and some that we haven't followed, uh, my husband actually lost his job of almost 13 years this past fall, um, 28 days shy of vesting for retirement because of a Facebook post. Um, wow. that actually left us in a bit of a surprise. Yes. Ouch. Uh, left us a lot, very surprised, but thanks to a lot of things I've re- we've re-examined over the last few years and becoming pretty diligent in YNAB, we just said, oh, okay, then we're going to go on vacation. And we packed up a car to go visit family in California and drive cross country. Um, he ended up actually getting a job before we'd even left New York state. So we we're already back on the bandwagon, but um, because of all of this, we have a pretty sizable 401k that we want to put to work. Um, we are looking at doing a self-directed IRA. I actually was a market professional for over a decade. Um, and his best friend and the godfather of our children does real estate in San Diego. Um, we've been looking at, we've, we've been looking at getting rental properties out there and having a nice sizable chunk of cash that could buy a duplex, um, outright seems like it might be a really nice opportunity to put the self-directed IRA into a duplex and then take that income from the rent rent, um, later on when we need to take the distributions. I don't know if there's any taxation issues that we might run into, though, when when it comes time to pass to our kids. So let's talk about that in just a minute. But can I, I just want to ask more about the story. So your husband was fired because he wrote a Facebook post that his employer considered to be offensive or against corporate policy, something like that? Yes, in a private group on Facebook, he wrote a post that did not, that quote, did not represent company values. 
Interesting. And he was fired for that reason. And was this industry related or was this related to personal, political or religious or ideological opinions? Uh, Second Amendment opinions. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He's made made very sure not to to comment publicly about anything that is within his field that would come back negatively towards his company or any other company. Wow. Yeah. This is... No criticism of FDA. Right, right, right. Interesting just because this is such a... Uh, I, I've heard, I see this happening, but I see very little reporting on the subject. And so, whenever I have an opportunity to to talk to somebody about it, then it's it was just good to hear some of the personal anecdotes. I've watched this for a number of years, and just in terms of seeing either the public censorship or the specific outright firing of people for expressing opinions. And uh, do do you think was the company? How do you think the company was tipped off? If it was in a private Facebook group, is there any? Do you have any opinion or, or thoughts on how that may have happened? I don't know. It's possible that it could be a former friend that didn't like that he didn't apologize appropriately for something he had said. Um, but I think it's more likely that being uh, the, the retirement policies changed at his company um, since the time when he was hired, and no, it's not the same years of service plus age anymore. And so he was one of the few young people younger people who was close to retirement. And I think it's because the whole, the fact that he was fired 28 days before he was fully vest. So we left almost a hundred thousand dollars on the table because he was fired. Is there a legal case there? Um, we're looking at age discrimination because the company is based in California and age discrimination is an issue there for anyone over 40. Right. Um, but it, it's a challenge. It is one that we're going to pursue, but it, it is, it's challenging. It's going to take a lot of time. Right. And it's always a, a balance of, is it worth pursuing in terms of the emotional turmoil, the, the, the financial cost for the actual um, financial outcome? Well, interesting. My, my advice, and I say this very advisedly, uh, what I recommend to people is in today's world, don't ever put anything in writing in any form that you are not content to see published on the front page of a newspaper. And I mean in any form, uh, whether that's in on Facebook, whether that is uh, on your personal wall, on uh, – actually, don't call it a wall anymore – on your personal timeline, on your personal page, on your personal website. Uh, don't put it in a private group. Don't put it in a Facebook message. Don't and communicate with somebody in writing in, an encrypt, in, a, in a text message. Anything you put in writing uh, very quickly is screenshotted and captured. Uh, and it's a significant, significant risk. I, I'm, I'm frequently disturbed at the risk that people expose themselves to uh, based upon their written communication. And I think that we should all pay careful attention. And I want to encourage people to speak their mind. Unfortunately, however, you've got to do so advisedly, given that many companies uh, demand uh, ideological conformity or and there are certain standards that if you don't follow them then uh, then it's going to happen so I, I support the right of employers to discriminate on any basis that they choose to that's not the law uh, but I support the right of employers to be able to hire and fire as they think is appropriate but I think it's important that we consider carefully the impact of our words but I'm glad that you are able to 
uh, number one, use it as an opportunity <laughs> to uh, uh, to travel a little bit. I think that's one of the best strategies to use. Is when if you're whether you're, hopefully you know many people in, in the wake of a firing, it's such an emotional uh, bit of turmoil that they can't easily re- relax. But whenever you leave a job or whenever you're laid off from a job, use that as a nice chance to um, move on to to take a little mini sabbatical, a mini break, a vacation, take some travel. Uh, financially, if you can, you just check your numbers and make sure you're financially secure, and then. Use it to bounce on to the next opportunity. So that is um, that sounds really good. I'm really uh, thankful uh, that you're in in such a good position. Doesn't it change? Uh, were you and he earlier in your lives? Were you ever fired from a job or laid off from a job when you felt much less secure? Was it a different experience when that happened? Um, he this is his first job after getting his doctorate. Um, I worked in the financial industry, so. The idea of being laid off was was not a surprise for me. It happened to me several times. Yeah, I just remember uh, as the normal course of business. Um, right. It did come as to a shock as him to him, especially because his, his dad served his whole career at one company as well. Right. So he was still in the mindset of company loyalty, which unfortunately seems to have uh, gone extinct. <laughs> I remember the the time that I was laid off from a job, uh, and uh, I. Uh, when it happened, I was, uh, it was, I had always, I realized in the wake of it, I had adopted this idea, which I think many of us share, that the only reason that you're going to be laid off from a job is because you've done something wrong. And even though I probably would have disavowed that idea if I if asked about it, I would have said, no, you could be laid off from a job if not some, doing something wrong. I probably would have uh, been act- a little bit more arrogant in my private thoughts and think, well, you know, I'm, I'm, Better than that. I'm better than the other person. And when I got out laid off from uh, from the job I was doing a decade ago, it was just out of the blue. I had no inkling it was coming. I had no expectation it was coming. And I remember just being so shocked and surprised in the sense of, wait a second, this is happening to me? Like I'm a I'm a star employee. I'm a <laughs> I'm Mr. You know, I'm Mr. Hard Worker. How is this happening to me? That I just remember laughing and the little anecdote that I that I usually share in the story, a number of years previously, I had studied uh, Dave Ramsey's courses. And one of the things that he did in his iteration of his Financial Peace University at that time is he talked about how if you're out of debt and you have a fully funded emergency fund, you can laugh in the face of the person who's laying you off and you can say, how big's the severance in the sense of take this bad thing and turn it into a good thing. And when I finally realized what was happening as I was sitting there in uh, the meeting, then I, I literally did that. I laughed and I snorted and I said, how big's the severance? Because I was so nervous. And I remember to this day, uh, both the uh, uh, the president and the, uh, and the CEO who were in the meeting – Kind of were taken aback and saying, uh, "Well, well, it, it's it's three months, but, but why do you ask?" And then I explained, "Well, I'm sorry, and I've worked really hard to be in a position where financially I'm prepared for this uh, event, and I didn't mean to be I didn't mean to be rude, but it was definitely a sobering experience and a very humbling experience, and I think it's challenging for many people to keep uh, a positive self esteem uh, out out of that. So I'm glad he's found another opportunity, and I'm glad that it has worked out. So back to the self directed IRA." Uh, is there any reason why you think this is not a good path for you to pursue based upon your personal experience, your comfort level with the approach and the particular uh, potential partners that you may involve in the process? Um, I think it seems like 
an amazing opportunity to me. My 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 uh, husband's best friend, our friend's godfather, has, does a huge amount of properties. His brother's a real estate attorney, and his dad has a huge amount of properties as well. And we're pretty much in the family queue for whenever there's a good property and they're not ready to buy because they stack up the cash first, then we would be then we'd be put in line. Um, and also in the assets, in lieu of having a life insurance to provide care for our kids, um, he said that having properties there, the income it'll generate is more than enough for their care and for everything else as well, should the worst happen to both of us. Um, my biggest concern is just, uh, I have a friend who's relatively new to the financial industry, and he said that there's huge taxation issues with inheriting IRAs. And I've just been so busy, I haven't had a chance to look into that myself. And and, and that's my one stumbling block at this point. Well, so specifically, based upon the scenario you're describing, it sounds to me like an ideal uh, use of a self-directed IRA. You've got the money. It gives you a large amount of investment dollars available. Uh, you have experience and competence in the realm of investing. You can do your due diligence. You have the personal connection that is trustworthy. I mean, that checks all the boxes. Um, from my perspective, that checks all the boxes as far as the use of a self-directed IRA. I think that's an ideal uh, an ideal solution. Uh, and especially with the inside connection on real estate and the fact that you're more, you and he are more sophisticated in your knowledge. He's got a PhD. You have advanced education. You have experience in the financial industry. I think these are all important things uh, that would lend a measure of sophistication to your to your personal approach. Uh, as far as taxation, I don't know what that person would be referring to. IRA taxation is extremely standardized, and it's the same. You're going to face the same. To my knowledge, uh, you're going to face the same taxation whether you're dealing with real estate in a self-directed IRA or whether you are dealing with uh, stocks in a, 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 in a mutual fund portfolio. Uh, and in essence, the taxation is this. As the money grows, of course, that tax will be directed to the future. Starting at the age of 70 and a half, the IRA will, not, will need to start to make required minimum distributions. You would want to make sure that the account, given the the real estate, could actually disperse the cash for those required minimum distributions. And of course, you can take however much you need out of it for retirement, or you can keep it as an asset for the benefit of uh, of of your children. The downside to a traditional IRA, which is what this would be, given that he's going from a 401k to a to an IRA the downside of course is those required minimum distributions if you don't need that money it can be annoying to have to take those out and that could be a challenge in the world of real estate especially if you had a property intensive portfolio but you didn't have the actual cash coming out of it uh, with regard to taxation when he dies uh, of course generally you would be the beneficiary if he were to predecease you but let's assume that both of you die if you leave the, bene- the the account as an asset for your children, then they would receive it under the, the standard rules. And those rules would be either they could take the money out very quickly. They could, of course, have access to the full amount at any time. Uh, and they would uh, – uh, or they could turn it into a stretch IRA where they could take the assets out over the course of uh, – over the course of their lifetime, uh, which is a great way to do it. Now, I guess perhaps the only consideration that he may be referring to would be that the taxation would be at income rates uh, rather than uh, 
dividends or profit from the ownership of real estate. Perhaps that's the the difference that he's referring to. And frankly, having never done a transaction like that, I would need to research that. Uh, I don't know if that would be what the, what this, the fear is. The fear would be, of course, that if you have a, a, a normal property and you leave it behind as – in fact, here, I've talked to myself. This, is, this must be what he's talking about. In general, if you and your husband buy a house and you pay $200,000 for this investment property, it grows over the course of your lifetime. And then when you die, it sells – your your heir is inherited at $600,000 of value. At that time, if you own the property in the standard way, that property, because it's long-term capital gain property, would receive a step-up in, ba- in tax basis, and your children would be able to inherit it with a $600,000 basis, which they could then turn, um, sell sell for $600,000, and they would incur no income tax on the property. Whereas if you put it into – if you purchase the property in the context of your IRA, then at that point in time, they would be receiving it as ordinary income property. And since we're getting money that's never been taxed um, and they're they're inheriting the money that's never been taxed, they're going to have to pay ordinary income tax rates on the money. So if you you bought the $200,000 property today, it grows in the, in the IRA, you die, they receive $600,000 and it comes with the income tax bill on a $600,000 worth of income for them when they take the money out. So my guess would be that that's the problem that your friend is referring to. And my answer to that would be, of course, we I want to have that long-term capital gains property, but that wouldn't necessarily be enough of a reason for me to walk away from pursuing a self-directed IRA uh, because the capital being available uh, uh, is valuable. You would just need to make sure the deal is going to get you returns that are in excess of of other investment opportunities that you have. So that would be my best analysis of, okay. of what he's saying and why he's saying it. Okay. And then with that, if it was uh, one where they where they spread the distributions over their life, then they would just it would get taxed at each distribution instead of in one chunk at, at our death. Yeah, and this is really powerful. This is one of the big benefits of IRAs. Uh, Roth IRAs are superior here, but it's one of the big benefits of IRAs. If you leave an account balance behind to a descendant, to your children, your grandchildren, let's keep it simple, then that uh, then they have to take the money out, but they have a couple different choices on how quickly they can take it out. They can take it – they have required minimum distributions as well. And so this is loosely called a stretch IRA in the vernacular of financial planning, although it's not actually – that's not actually a technical term. What it means is you take it out over the longest period possible. So if I, as a 30-year-old son, inherit a $100,000 or a million-dollar IRA from my uh, from my from my dad uh, or my mom, then I can just take the required minimum distributions from that over the course of my entire lifetime. And so the, there's an IRS table that calculates based upon life expectancy. So I don't remember the number, but let's say that the life expectancy for me as a 30-year-old would be an additional 60 years of life. Well, if I take a million-dollar portfolio, uh, I just need to take out one sixtieth of that account as at the age of 30. And then the rest of the money continues to accrue with no taxation. It continues to maintain the character of the IRA account, which means that the taxation is deferred. And so it continues to build and to build and to build. And then if it's a traditional IRA, I just go ahead and take the money 
and I pay income taxes on whatever my distribution is in that year. Now, this is more powerful with a Roth IRA, and this is one of the reasons why Roth IRAs can be such a valuable estate planning tool for people who have them because Roth IRAs don't have required minimum distributions for a retiree. So if somebody is wealthy and they don't need the money, then the money can continue to grow tax-deferred from, say, age 70 to age 90 at a natural death, and then the child can continue to maintain it uh, and 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 they receive the money over that same distribution schedule, but they still receive the money income tax-free. And so it's more powerful in a Roth IRA because Roth IRAs can be left alone for longer because they don't have required minimum distributions. But it's still powerful for anybody who inherits an IRA from their parents or grandparents and they don't need the money. They can stretch those distributions out and wind up getting much more money out of it because the, the account stays invested and invested tax efficiently. And can I ask one more twist on that as well? Go ahead. So if we use pretty much the whole amount into in the self-directed IRA for a property, and then because we'd probably have to pay cash because that self-directed IRA can't take out a loan, um, in years, because now that my husband is in the startup world, um, in years where he doesn't have an income, can we take those proceeds within the self-directed IRA and roll some of that into a Roth IRA or am I just going completely off the charts here? I wish I – there are a number of businesses (laughs) that pique my radical um, proclivities and this is one of them. Um, The the world of custodianship for self-directed investment accounts, it it lights my fires because it's so interesting to me the things that could be done. I don't see any reason why – In my knowledge, I don't see any reason why it's not possible conceptually. For example, I don't know why you couldn't establish uh, an LLC and then have the IRA own the units of that LLC and then just simply um, transfer those from an IRA to a Roth IRA um, when you needed to. I don't know any reason why legally it wouldn't be possible. My guess would be that just practically is it is it is it worthwhile? Um, but if you, if you because conceptually that's exactly and, and the reason is conceptually that's exactly what would happen if you were to say purchase shares of an existing publicly traded um, REIT, a real estate investment trust. That's what somebody else is doing. They have established a REIT. They're issuing shares of that REIT. You purchase those shares within a traditional IRA. And then when you convert from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, you're basically just transitioning those shares from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. So I don't know why it wouldn't be possible conceptually uh, to do that with your own private holdings. Many of these companies that will work and serve as custodians for your self-directed accounts will allow you to mingle um, various self-directed funds. So you could, in these accounts, you could have a self-directed educational savings account. You can have a self-directed health savings account, and you can have a uh, self-directed 401k or or self-directed IRA. And essentially, they market this under what they call the checkbook LLC. Uh, and you can just simply have one checkbook and then the shares of your ownership of that that entity are owned in, by these different accounts that, that you have. So 
my answer is I don't know why it couldn't be done conceptually, uh, but practically speaking, uh, it, I don't know if these custodians will service that. If any listeners have done this or have additional advice, come on by RadicalPersonalFinance.com and comment on today's show, and, and you can help educate uh, Erica and educate me on the actual details of it. It's one of those areas where I'd love to do more, and, I, and I've been remiss in not doing more discussion of self-directed uh, investing on the show. Anything else, Erica? Uh, that's it. After I get dig into it, maybe we could get into it together up for an episode. Absolutely, that would help you. I would. I would love that. Let okay. me know. Uh, uh, absolutely. And Erica, after, okay. um, real quick, since I since I know we've corresponded outside of this call, tell me briefly. I was going to do a full interview with you on the show about building your own house. Um, you've educated yourself a lot in this area. Is one of the strategies of uh, financial planning, and I've been planning to do a standalone show on that, but I haven't gotten it done yet. Tell me quickly what you learned in pursuing the idea of uh, building your own house, especially as it relates to uh, the financial feasibility and how it's impacted your own plan? Well, I'm actually getting a tractor for Christmas with a backhoe because <laughs> we are laying the foundation for it. <laughs> Fortunately, things didn't line up to tear down the house this winter because otherwise we would have been in the teardown phase right when my husband lost his job. Good. So I'm really lucky that everything got pushed out. Uh, we're looking at the question. We were going to partially finance the build, um, but now we're not sure if we're just, we're probably just going to stock all the cash. Um, I'm just trying to go through everything we have and get rid of all the excess belongings so that we don't have clutter and we're a lot more streamlined. And then once I do that, I'm going to try and finalize the plans to build the house, both as economically as comfortable and as uh, basically as, as multifunction as possible. I'm looking at, at doing the basically doing the build, doing buildings in sizes that optimize materials for strength and for open space. I'm looking at things like putting in a because it's cold and um, also taking passive solar design. So I'm looking to, to take a whole bunch of these different pieces, but it's kind of hard when you're a perfectionist <laughs> and you want to try and make it perfect. <laughs> but uh, I've charged myself as soon as I, as soon as I purge everything I can from the house, I am making these plans and I need to start pricing it out because either that or do some remodels on the house. And I don't want to pour money into something I'm looking to tear down. <laughs> and you went through the Shelter Institute course up in the Northeast, right? I did. It was up in Maine and it was the most amazing class um, that I've taken. I was there. I had a pretty extensive background because I was an architecture minor and I've uh, built a few things around the yard, a big coop, chicken coop and a few other things. Um, and there were people who had no idea at all. So for me, I was able to look into it and get a PhD level look um, when I asked clarifying and uh, furthering questions. And then there were other people that just became acquainted through it. Um, it was great. We got to we got to go through all different aspects of the build, um, septic systems, um, electrical systems, all sorts of things, and also got to have a field day when we got to play with some backhoes and bulldozers um, on the farm that the uh, that the founder has. It's actually a family company, and so there was the father running a good part of the lectures and. Uh, daughters and sons um, all there as part of the team and just helping with a really holistic look at it. And also the understanding that sometimes, you know, you're gonna, still going to specialize, even if you're going to do everything you can. And the mindset of doing everything, just basically the mindset of just trying to do everything that you can do on your own, on your own, and then asking for help when you need it was fantastic. He had a welding class on the Saturday in between the classes for anyone to learn, to learn how to weld. <laughs> 
That's awesome. Yeah. So the for those who aren't familiar, uh, the organization that Erica attended is called the Shelter Institute. It's the shelter shelterinstitute.com. And they offer various courses uh, at different amounts. But they bring in people who with, as Erica just said, a, a variety of experience and walk them through the process of here's how you build a house. And for those who have the interest and the patience, building your own house can be something uh, or at least doing much of the work to build your own house could be a, a really good financial move. The biggest challenge is education and and, com- and, and then confidence. Uh, but you can do a lot of things yourselves in, in the home building process. And, and also depending on the, the, the stage of your family, uh, this can be very valuable. It's something that when I was about uh, 10 years old, my father went through the process of building uh, our house. And he didn't do all of it because he was uh, – he didn't do all of it. He was maintaining a, a full-time 40-hour-a-week job at the time. But he did a lot of it. And it was a very formative process for uh, me and helpful for me, for my siblings. We did a lot of the work ourselves, which was extremely valuable for me to have the experience. I was the youngest one, so I did the least. But for me to have the experience of going through and actually build, seeing a house built and building it from the ground up, it provided a tremendous amount of interaction between – my parents and and me uh, uh, and my my many siblings. Uh, it was uh, really really valuable uh, in our family, and then it also allowed my parents to build uh, a much bigger house than they would have been able to afford, and it solved their housing needs at the time in about the only way that was financially viable. They couldn't afford with where we live and the size of our family. They couldn't afford to to buy the types of houses that would fit us, and they couldn't afford to 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 bring um, uh, our whole family together, which was the goal at the time. The goal at the time was to for my my parents to be able to build a place where within the nature of the house, they could have a house that could accommodate could accommodate uh, six children and my grandparents living with us. And so custom designing and then custom building was the only way that they worked out that they were that they could actually build something that would give our family an ideal uh, an ideal living space. Now my father is very competent, he's an engineer. He was very competent with his own background and experience to do many of the things. But to this day I value those experiences. I value the fact of of you know, we put on the roof. Uh, we did uh, did the wiring. Uh, we didn't do the plumbing, but uh, we did all the flooring. And so, those experiences for children were very, very valuable, and it solved a major financial need of our family at the time, and was was valuable. So, I think it's something that we we've often uh, neglected as a strategy. But for whether for young people, for uh, people with with children, it, you can learn it. I, I remember seeing a, a, a story about a, a very inspiring lady who. She had young children. She was a divorced single mom. She had young children, and I think she lived in an urban environment. But basically, she built her her own house with nothing more than the help of YouTube, trying to study things on YouTube and then, then working on things. And I've read story after story of people who, who don't have a lot of money who build slowly. They used reclaimed materials, salvaged materials, and they just simply force themselves to learn the skills that other people have, and they're able to build a really beautiful and functional uh, housing for themselves and their families by doing the work themselves. And I would love to see that 
um, expand because <laughs> it seems like it should be that that fundamental human ability to build your own house, to 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 craft with your hands the shelter for yourself and your family should be a standard human skill that we teach all of our children. But unfortunately, we've lost it. So Erica, keep me in the keep me in the loop as you work through your project. I'd love to hear and then uh, bring you on the show for a, a full discussion when you when you uh, when you guys work out what actually uh, ends up happening. We'd love to hear your experiences. That would be fantastic. Thanks so much, Joshua. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Going on to Nick in Indiana. Nick, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. How can I serve you today, sir? Hi, there, Joshua. Um, feels weird to hear your voice not at 2x speed. I hear that constantly so much from, from yeah. listeners. And when I teach a class on a webinar, people say, oh, it's weird to, to hear Joshua's voice at 1x speed. And it makes me all nervous. About, yeah. Am I going too slow? Go ahead. <laughs> No, 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 nothing like that. Uh, but anyway, my uh, first question relates to your experience when you were um, working with planning clients. Are there any particular questions that you wish more clients would have asked or information that clients should have brought to your attention to kind of get the most out of your services? I know in my work as a doctor, I have patients all the time that kind of avoid talking about a lot of things that I could really help them with. And I'd like to avoid that sort of mistake um, when I seek the services of a planner. So what can clients do to kind of help their planners help them the most? Wow, what a fun question. Um, two big themes two big themes occur to me uh, right off the bat, and then probably some individual questions specifically. The first theme that occurs to me would be somebody simply making it clear that they're open to advice in any area. Frequently, somebody has a, a stated scope. And as a financial planner, one of the things that you try to do is you lay out the scope of the engagement uh, using the kind of the formal language. What is the scope and nature of our engagement? So if somebody wants a, a review of their investment portfolio, that's one thing. If they want a review of their tax plan, that's another thing. But if somebody were to talk with me as a financial planner and say, I'm interested in your thoughts in a review of my, say, life insurance policy – then that doesn't necessarily give me permission to start talking to them about their plans for their child's education. Now, on radical personal finance, I can do that, and I do that very freely. But in a professional context, that generally is not accepted. So the first thing that somebody could do is if they're interested in holistic advice or holistic um, um, input, then they can make that clear to a planner. And just by simply saying something like, by the way, as we talk about this, I want you to know that I'm interested in anything you have to say or any insight that you have about uh, any other aspects of my financial situation. Uh, and a way that they could do that practically would be to be clear about everything that they have. Uh, instead of being secretive, uh, they could just say, here's what I have. I have this here. I have this other thing here uh, as well. Now, of course, you as a client would need to balance your, the need for privacy in those things. Uh, I've talked about that elsewhere on the show. But in general, most people, you don't have to protect every single thing. And just being f straightforward with it helps a lot. For a financial planner, a financial planner is in, a, in an interesting relationship with a client where much as you Nick as a doctor you you there's a bit of you have to have a certain amount of respect as a doctor you can ask your client to say take off your clothes 
when it's an appropriate time for your personal examination to tell them, take off your clothes. But if you told every single one of your clients right when they come in, go ahead and take off your clothes, that would obviously be a, a breach of, of, of trust. It's not strictly necessary when, when someone has a, a, a problem in their throat. And so financially speaking, it's a similar scenario. Not everybody wants to get financially naked with their financial planner. But yet if they did, it would make it a little easier. And so the, the, the metaphorical parallel would be that, Nick, if every patient that you saw would come in, they would uh, do all of the vital measurements right off the bat. They would um, do blood panels and have everything right there, a comprehensive portfolio of all their past medical exams, uh, all their history, all their other doctor's comments, and um, – uh, at the risk of pushing this too far and be standing there naked in the waiting room when you come in, you'd probably be much more efficient and much more comprehensive with your advice. You look at their diet log for their food log of how they eat, their calorie intake, et cetera. Like you'd probably give good advice. Well, the closer that you can get with a planner as far as opening things up in that way, uh, that'll help. Uh, I think that'll, that'll really help. The second kind of major theme that I would see as valuable is – forthrightly disclosing the opinions that you as a client hold and not hiding those for the sake of uh, professional courtesy. For example, um, when I sold life insurance, it was it, it's never been a surprise to me that some people have strong convictions about what's the appropriate way to buy life insurance policies. Some people believe very strongly that it would be idiotic to uh, to ever purchase a whole life insurance policy or it would be idiotic to ever do anything except buy a 10 or 20-year level term insurance policy for 10 times your annual income. As a financial advisor, it's not surprising to me that people believe that. But it's much more valuable for me if they would just simply open their mouth and say, my belief is that with regard to life insurance, I should only ever buy 10 or 20-year level term insurance policy. What do you think about that opinion? Because then that would give me the opportunity as a financial professional to say, uh, uh, you know, here, well, here's what I think. When I actually interviewed for the very first time with the company that I wound up working with for six years, which was a leader in the area of whole life insurance, this was in whole life insurance sales, so massive amounts of whole life insurance. I was at that time operating under the deep, deep conviction that term buying term life insurance was the only appropriate decision for every thoughtful, reasonable person who wants to make a good financial decision. And so I led with that in my initial interview with the various life insurance agents that I talked to to try to figure out if this was a company that I wanted to associate with. I said to them, I believe you should only buy term insurance and invest the difference. What do you think and why? And then being able to listen to them say, well, here are the advantages of that approach and here are the disadvantages of that approach and here are various scenarios and here's how you would know what's right helped me to come to a different conclusion than I had previously. But what I found is that clients always harbored their own opinions, convictions. You should only buy index funds. Uh, you should only buy term life insurance. You should never buy long-term care insurance until you're 55 years old. Uh, you should always buy disability insurance at your job. You should never buy individual stocks. You should never do anything except 
you fill in the blank with whatever, that I could pick up on them, but many people didn't have the confidence in their opinion to actually hear my responses. And so if they would just simply say, by the way, here's my personal belief, what do you think? That could get a whole lot of touchy-feely foreplay out of the way, and we could get right to it. And I could say, well, here's what I think about that opinion. Here's where I think it's applicable. And here is what I personally believe are the downsides. So let's talk about your situation and figure out what may or may not be appropriate for you. Those would be two big picture approaches that I think um, are valuable. And here would be, I guess, one more very important one, Nick, um, that I think is, is also makes a difference. Many people, when meeting with a financial advisor, feel the need to be reticent about the actual circumstances that they're going through. And uh, the best example of this would be family problems, family turmoil, uh, marriage problems, uh, and uh, et cetera. And so they often want to pull back and not talk about things that they think are going to be uncomfortable. And for a while, when I was a new advisor, I didn't see it happen, and I couldn't understand why did this person not do what I said they should do. You know, I sat with them, I listened to them. Um, why did they not implement what I told them they should do? And I would, some people would say no to the recommendations that I made, or they would often just disappear uh, and not respond to the recommendations that I made. And I didn't understand why. And I would go back through all the recommendations, through all the notes, and I would say, but this was exactly what they should do. They should. Uh, they, you know, my advice is right based upon everything they said and what they said was important. My advice was right. But as I grew in experience and matured, I quickly realized that there were frequently things that they wouldn't tell me about. And most commonly it was uh, uh, marital strife. And they would say, if I'm meeting with the husband or the wife, they wouldn't want to tell me what the husband, their, 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 their spouse was saying in their actual situation. Uh, And so later I would find out when I talked to them a year later, well, they had since gotten divorced. And if they had just simply told me, then I could have provided some actual useful advice for them and said, well, here's, uh, here are a few things that you should do and with regard to your divorce planning. And definitely, if you are considering consulting a divorce attorney, you definitely should not do all of these recommendations that I've made to you, but you should do these other things to protect yourself or protect your wife or, or et cetera, to come through this in the most inexpensive and the best possible way for, for all the outcomes. But they didn't want to tell me they were facing marital problems, and therefore, we basically all wasted our time. And then uh, I guess a corollary of that would be when I'm in a competitive situation. It's no surprise when I'm in a competitive situation with another advisor that that I'm in that situation. I'm meeting with Joshua and I'm meeting with a firm across town and we're both pre- presenting proposals on a uh, a 2 million dollar portfolio that we're trying to bring under our stewardship. Okay. Well, that's fine. I don't mind competition. We know it's a big competition, but let's talk about what what you're doing, and I'll help you make that decision. Here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. And at least if I know who the competition is and what they're proposing, then I can tell you here are the flaws in it. Same thing used to happen with insurance policies. And and one of the, the little things that was helpful with insurance policies is that when, legally speaking, if somebody is seeking to replace a life insurance policy, which means a newly issued policy is seeking to be canceled and replaced by another contract, 
legally, there has to be a notice made uh, to the company who holds the contract, and that company could then notify the agent. But frequently, the client wouldn't say, oh, I'm meeting with this other firm across town, and I'm considering replacing your policy with this other company. And I often found that so maddening where I would say, you know, for sake of example, you know, listen, I can sell you a prudential policy or I can sell you a MetLife policy or I could sell you a Northwestern Mutual policy or I could sell you a New York Life policy. Here's where I, why I've recommended for you policy number one. And yes, I understand that this other agent who you met through such and such is recommending to you a MetLife policy instead of my prudential policy or my Northwestern Mutual policy. And here are the advantages of that that they're telling you about, but here's what you don't know that could hurt you. But so frequently, people didn't want to hurt my feelings by telling me they're in a competitive environment, that I'm in a competitive environment. When And the only person that was hurt by that was themselves. So honesty, frankness, and a recognition of the fact that, that these little uh, questions are not unknown. In the same way, Nick, that you've, you're in competition with WebMD and whatever so-and-so says on the nightly news, that's not a surprise to you if I come in and I'm, I'm curious. But you also have a lot to add that if I'm open to you that, that I could really gain from. So those would be my thoughts in answer to your question. Okay, thanks for that, Joshua. That, that actually sounds remarkably similar to uh, kind of my thoughts on seeing patients. So so yeah. I was going to spin Next it around on you. Doctor, all, so, those let, things, all those things apply. So I was going to spin uh, it around on you. And let me just ask you, if you were answering that question from the perspective of a medical professional, how would you respond to it? I mean, really, most all the things that you said, you know, certainly still apply. Um, you know, one, you know, kind of going back to something you kind of said about people being some of embarrassed about certain situations and things like that. You know, we hear, you know, what to you is a, you know, weird, embarrassing, I can't believe this is happening to me situation. We see this stuff all the time. So, you know, don't be embarrassed to bring something up to your doctor or, you know, as you said, you know, if there's trouble at home or, you know, your job is going to get lost, you know, don't be embarrassed to talk to your planner about that. I would imagine, so, you know, that that's kind of one of the big, big things. Um, and also, you know, be, you know, say up front, you know, here are the issues that I'd like to kind of work on today. Cause you know, we get so many patients and I've certainly been guilty of doing this in the past of, you know, Oh, Hey, I know we're all done here, doctor, but X, Y, and Z as well. Well, okay. You've, you know, just like the, the divorce situation you talked about, okay, now we're in a completely different situation. You know, maybe that changes everything that I just spent the last 10 minutes talking to you about. Um, so, yeah, I would I would certainly say a lot of things you said, but kind of add those two things on top of, you know, don't be embarrassed about what you've got going on and, you know, kind of say everything up front um, so that we kind of have all the information going in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have found um, that there's a strikingly consistent among the professions – and I'm uh, lumping financial planning in with the professions that are more frequently considered, such as the practice of law or the practice of medicine. Among the professions, when I interact with other professionals, there's often striking similarities between uh, the different approaches and the things that, that, that many of us struggle with. And I think more than anything, frankness and honesty is, uh, is usually the most helpful 
helpful thing. Sometimes it's hard. Frequently it's hard. But forthrightness, honesty, uh, at least there we have the opportunity to make progress. You had a second question. Nick, go ahead with your second question, please. Um, yeah, the second r- relates to um, switching from a sole proprietorship to an S-Corp. I've been working as an independent contractor for the last two years, basically just under my own name, um, making about 120000 a year. Um, I am considering switching to an S, you know, an S corp, and I've been thinking about this for a while. And you know, with some of the new tax law changes, it looks like that might even be a more attractive option now. Right. But I'm just wondering if, if my, you know, what I'm being paid and what I'm, what I'm doing is not changing. You know, same job, same pay. Is that gonna kind of trigger the IRS to say, hey, you were, you were making 120,000? And now your your salary is ninety, but you're getting these thirty thousand of dividends. You know, is that going to cause a problem for me, or is that okay to do? So the basic question is: is changing the approach to business, such as entity from sole proprietorship to S corporation, is that conceivably a red flag that the IRS would say? Uh, Hey, by the way, because you're doing this, we're going to give you extra scrutiny to your situation. Is that an accurate summary of the question? Sure. Yeah. You know, I guess it makes more sense if you're kind of starting a whole new business or something like that. But for mine, everything else would be staying the same, just how I'm being taxed on it. So, you know. Right. I don't believe that that is something that is uh, appropriate. I think it's uh, – and here would be my more extended uh, answer. Number number one, I think it's a good idea. Uh, I am scared of the IRS. Uh, they have guns. They have men with guns and they have jails. And I'm scared of people with guns who have uh, the law and all the legal authority of all of the force in the land at their disposal. Uh, So I treat people in that situation with a very healthy amount of respect. Uh, So I'm scared of the IRS, and I recommend that you be too. Uh, That's something that's very, very important. And they've cultivated that reputation over the years, especially in the area of tax enforcement. Number two, I'm not scared of the IRS because at the end of the day, uh, the IRS doesn't put you in jail for just about anything except not reporting income. Uh, They don't put you in jail because you messed up on your taxes or because you took a deduction that that they don't think that you should be uh, allowed to. So on the whole, although I think it's good to be scared of the IRS – you don't think we need to walk around on tiptoes thinking that they're all of a sudden peeking in the window uh, and that we should never do anything that might uh, ruffle their feathers. Uh, I I appreciate when people are aggressive with the IRS. I think they have a moral – that we have a moral duty to push back in any conceivable thing uh, and to push back in our own um, uh, business practices to take every single uh, deduction that is allowable. I think we have a moral duty to make our tax bills as low as possible and then to press back in whatever way possible politically to make, make uh, the overall system of taxation uh, fairer and cheaper uh, as, as is in any way that is possible. So that's kind of just a little bit of, of, of ideology. Practically speaking, what you're describing would not raise any red flag whatsoever. The natural progression of 
of businesses is that they will grow and change over time. It's a natural for businesses to begin as a sole proprietorship, to move into uh, an S corporation or an LLC, and then as they grow to change to a C corporation. So practically that is the normal progression of many businesses. And practically, there are many reasons why that would be very much in your best interest, none of which necessarily relate to tax savings. So that is, uh, that is definitely not going to be a red flag. In addition to that, there is nothing wrong with structuring your affairs in the most tax-efficient way possible. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it morally, and there's nothing wrong with it legally. Uh, I think that you should morally and legally do both of those things to structure your affairs in the most efficient way possible. You simply have to pay attention to any stated rules that do exist on what you can cannot do. And so the only danger in pursuing what you're describing would be if you were to ignore the rules or the policies that the IRS would follow and enforce with regard to S-corporation taxation and, of course, most specifically, practically speaking, to the actual structuring of your income with salary versus dividends. If you move to an S-corporation and you started taking $1 of salary and $119,999 of dividends as compared to currently where you have $120,000 of self-employment income, that probably would trigger uh, uh, an audit. That probably would trigger the red flags. But it's because uh, that's out of the guidelines. Uh, it's not because it's wrong to go from, an, from a, a sole proprietorship to an S-corporation. It's because the requirement of an S-corporation is that, especially for professional services, that you're paid a salary commensurate with the salary in the area. So what you should do is you should research what's the salary in the area, figure out your scheme of, of, uh, of, of defending that based upon the data that you've gathered in your area of what's an appropriate salary, and then you should set your salary appropriately. And I think that's the best way to handle it. But no, making the transition that you're describing is not wrong. And even if it were solely for the savings of tax savings, I don't think that would be a problem. Uh, the IRS has a doctrine where if the only reason for making a move uh, is to uh, save on taxes, for example, you structure a transaction in a certain way, and if the only reason for doing it is to lower your tax bill, they'll disallow that. There has to be a compelling business reason. But changing entity is perhaps the easiest thing to properly, legally, and morally justify as an appropriate business reason. Uh, and you're not just structuring something to lower your taxes. There are many other benefits that will accrue to you from that uh, perspective. So short answer, Nick, don't worry about it. Be scared of the IRS um, because, again, they've got the men with guns who will come and back them up, and you should be scared of those people. Uh, but don't be scared of the IRS because the time that they show up with guns and the ways that they show up with guns are pretty well um, uh, known, and what you're describing is nowhere near the line of danger. Good answer? Yep, sounds good. All right, very good, sir. All right, final caller for the day. Let's go to Ruha in Alabama. Ruha, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. How can I serve you today, please? Hi, Joshua. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Okay, let me just hand my baby off. Oh, how old you? How old your little one? 
She's uh, going to be 18 months in a day or two. What a beautiful stage. <laughs> yeah, she is wonderful. We are so blessed. Uh, so today I wanted to talk to you about uh, filing my taxes. Um, we, in 2017, we uh, made the big exciting transition from real house to tiny house. And uh, that move actually precipitated a whole bunch of other um, actions and behaviors that should be pretty um, advantageous to us uh, for reducing our tax liability for the year. Um, so, and then others, of course, will actually add to our tax liability. Um, but long story short, this is my first year ever when we've had more than just, you know, a, a personal income uh, from, what do you call that, a W-2, I guess? Mm -hmm. So um, because of all these, you know, added complexities, um, I'm feeling like it might be a good decision to uh, get a professional to do our taxes this year. Okay. Um, but my other concern with that is, uh, for instance, I, I've um, just been going through uh, Jeff Schnepper's um, uh, how to pay zero taxes mm -hmm. book. Yes. And, um, you know, I, I want, I want to hire that professional, you know, I want to <laughs> hire the, the, the one who's, you know, really looking to help us, you know, save every dollar that, that should be ours. Um, and, you know, someone who's not just going to treat us like, you know, one more client through a revolving door. You want to hire them. I want to hire them. <laughs> Every business owner right. I've ever worked with wants to hire them. And unfortunately, that is um, – they're a hard person to find, and they don't come cheap. Uh, so I think you've got to, to, mm -hmm. to justify. So let me ask a couple of questions, and I may be able to help – I, I will be able to help guide you in the right direction. So this last year, 2017, was your first year in business. So this is your first year with revenue gained from your businesses. Is that right? Yes. And about how much money in total revenue would you say that you've earned from your uh, business activities? Um. Probably around $8,000. Okay. Do you have good records of your various financial transactions for the year uh, across the board, personal expenses, business expenses, et cetera? Uh, they could be better, but they're not bad. So here's been my experience. The biggest value of a an accountant, a good tax planner is in two things. It's in bookkeeping for a busy business professional, and it's in proactive tax planning. Those are the big, big valuable points, especially the proactive tax planning. And so if you're wading into a book like Schnepper's book, which is excellent, it's called, again, How to Pay Zero Taxes, your guide to every tax break the IRS allows. He issues a new version every year. It's excellent, but it's also overwhelming. But if you're wading into a book like that and even looking at it, then you probably have the temperament or at least the willingness to study certain things to help you in the planning direction. I don't know how to find a good planning, a good tax planner in your local area. My personal experience has been that many accountants are competent to, to provide good planning. 
but they get very accustomed to their client base not valuing it. And most clients just want their returns done. They just want their returns done seemingly as quickly as possible and as, as cheaply as possible so they can get their refund back. And many, um, many accountants build and structure their practices in that way. They build and structure their practices in a way that serves the person who brings in their stack of stuff and just wants it done fast and cheap. So how to find and, – and frankly, if I were an accountant, I would probably build a business like that because it's much harder to, to, to build and market the business related to advice and strategy than it is to, uh, uh, to, to market the advice related to doing the return. So I don't know how to help find someone like that. But here's how I would approach it if I were looking for somebody. I would start to call different people in my local community that I had a relationship with, business people especially, any business person that I know from any context, someone in your church, someone in your local chamber of commerce, uh, somebody that you uh, are connected with and say, I'm looking for a tax planner. Do you know anybody in the area who I can talk to? And you can start to get referrals in your local area to people. And most accountants will be happy to sit and talk with you without charging you. And the best time to do tax planning with them is to do it not during tax season. Here in the beginning of January is still a decent time where you can get an accountant's time. But if we go much farther than this, this is their busy season. And the best time to talk to them is in uh, you know July when they're not up against the corporate deadlines or the personal deadlines in the, uh, July or December, something like that, when they have more time. So you can potentially pursue somebody in that in that area. With your current business revenue, I wouldn't think that it's it necessarily needs to be a high priority. Uh, the tax programs, uh, like TurboTax being, I think, the most well-known one, or Tax Cut, or other competitors to those, the tax programs do a, a really good job of walking you through all of the potential deductions that you can take, all the potential approaches to business. And so here's what I would recommend that you start with at the very least. Print or compile as comprehensive of a uh, an inventory of your financial transactions for last year as you can get your hands on. Uh, any accounts that they have, print the statements, et cetera. The best outcome is if you have a, a register or a spreadsheet or something that has every financial financial transaction possible. And then start by going through something like the TurboTax software. Uh, I've used them for years. They do a fine job. Uh, I'm sure the others are excellent as well. Uh, but start by sitting with something like the TurboTax software and go page by page through every question that they ask you. And when they ask you the question, sit and carefully read it and think, do I have any of these transactions? Is there anything related to this that I have? And follow the prompts. Most people uh, who are basically competent in the language of business, uh, which you clearly are if you've taken the action step of buying a book like Schnepper's book, most people will be perfectly able to go through uh, TurboTax and uh, to walk their way through it. You can walk your way through it without buying it. You can use their web, web interface. They don't charge you until the very end, and you can start to see your results and see what you've, what you've got. And I would start with that DIY process. My experience has been that I've gotten big value when I was confused on certain things by uh, 
consulting with a couple of accountants. But then, for example, one of my favorite accountants that, that, that worked with me and that I used to file my returns for a number of years then sold his practice. And then the next guy, I didn't get much value. And he wouldn't take the time to sit and talk to me, wouldn't take the time to do proactive planning. And I actually learned through the process of going to TurboTax and then starting to read more books, I, I learned much more to the point where I feel like there's there's a hard place for an accountant to be able to help me. And with $8,000 of business revenue at this point, it's going to be hard for an accountant to make a measurable difference in your tax bill, I would guess, if you do a good job with TurboTax. As your business grows, then I would start to solicit the advice of a professional. Okay. Anything else or any specific That sounds questions? reasonable. And that, well, my, my plan was to, you know, start with TurboTax and start to go through it myself and then see if I can uh, maybe get someone to review it. Um, and uh, I, I think I'm aware of a few services that will review it for for free. And then, you know, if you want advice back, they'll charge you. <laughs> right. so, I don't know. We'll, I'll, I'll have to look into that a little more. Um, but that, you know, that pretty much... Uh, covers my question. Um, it just had to do with, you know, we've got with, uh, with the move, we had a few, you know, relocation, uh, expenses. And then, uh, we started renting out our old home and, and um, we're actually taking uh, tenants on our, our new, um, the land that we pot, bought to, uh, develop to park our tiny home. We actually have a tenant there as well. So, you know, just with with those few different uh, categories of you know, in charitable donations as well, uh, the different categories I thought might might make it worthwhile to have someone kind of on my side looking through things and saying, "Oh, look, you missed something there." The challenge. But I've been using that. Right. The challenge to that, you're not wrong, but the challenge that I've experienced practically is the quality of the advice that you'll get from a tax accountant will be dramatically impacted by the quality of your records. In my early years in business, I didn't have very good records. And most people don't have good records. And so their accountant is essentially forced to make a good faith estimate on certain things and to do the best that they can to say, well, this is probably what happened. But in general, if you don't have good records, it's going to be hard for them to to be aggressive, and they're certainly not going to be aggressive. Uh, and that's, I think, what many of us would like, is we'd like to have an accountant who's aggressive, but their their license is at stake, and, and they're not going to, uh, if you think about it, if you're one of mm-hmm. 200 clients, your accountant is not going to risk their business for the benefit of you, one of 200 clients, to be aggressive with something that you don't have. And so if you don't have good records, right. then frequently they can't help you all that much. The flip side is if you have good records – it's relatively easy for you to go ahead and enter those records into the the program. Most accountants don't sit down and and, mm-hmm. and manually um, fill in a, a form 1040. They use a professional tax preparation software. Usually, they have uh, a data clerk who will do the the entering of the data for them, and then they'll sit down and review the overall return. And so, if you're looking to save yourself a little bit of money and you're looking to develop some skills, I don't see any reason for you not to start 
with a TurboTax. Use TurboTax as your inspiration mm-hmm. to dig through your records and build good records for the year and construct and reconstruct anything you have. And then if you get stuck, go ahead and at that time go and, and solicit advice and then take the the output from TurboTax, what you learn, and go ahead and and, and potentially consider uh, getting a second opinion and, and, and use that referral process to, to try to work with a couple of, uh, of accountants. If you find a good accountant, they're well worth keeping. Just like with any professional, it's sometimes harder to find a good accountant as measured not by their competence but as measured by your their willingness to work with you in the way that you want to be worked with. And if you find them, I think you should continue to engage with them, but they're not easy to find. Uh-huh. I wish you all the best. And if you have any specific questions, then uh, feel free to uh, connect with me or, or feel free to use the power of uh, – there's some great tax professionals in the Radical Personal Finance Facebook group, uh, really strong uh, professionals. Go ahead and ask your questions there, and sometimes that will point you in the right direction as well. That is it for our Friday Q&A show. Thank you all so much for listening. Man, it's good to get back to these Q&A shows. I enjoy doing them. I invite you to join the show in uh, next week. Uh, in order to do that, remember to sign up to become a patron, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron, uh, and you'll be able to support the show there and also to gain access to these calls. Feel free, if you want to talk to me, feel free to um, sign up there, and, and that's a good way to do it. If you'd like to speak with me privately, please remember that I do a limited amount of private phone consulting. Uh, and what that means is if you want to speak to me about a, a specific issue, it can be a private issue, or if you want to review, if you want some feedback on advice you're hearing from another professional, feel free to go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash phone call, and you can book a call with me, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash phone call. That call, you'll pay by the minute for however much time you choose to uh, speak with me there. So go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash phone call, and you can find those details uh, in general. Uh, I can't remember how many. I've got do- several dozen reviews there, but I've not had any uh, phone client uh, express dissatisfaction either in a public review or dissatisfaction with their experience to me privately. Uh, I can cut straight to the chase and oftentimes simplify complex questions and give you a valuable bit of feedback. Uh, and if you take the cost of a phone call with me, and you compare it to the potential cost of uh, a major financial mistake, uh, I'm very confident in the service that I offer there. Uh, I think that's it for today. Next week, we'll get back to it, and I will look forward to speaking with you then. Thank you for listening. This show is part of the Radical Life Media Network of podcasts and resources. Find out more at RadicalLifeMedia.com.